0: actually really uh, thought a couple of days ago, why did I commit myself to, pre- uh, to preach on this section of Matthew with you guys? Uh, See, so I really want to confess to you that my own prayer life is an absolute shambles. Uh, it's something I've, I really struggle with. I know it's important, uh, but always I find it uphill work just to even get started. And no sooner do I, do I get started then, you know, I think about that, oh, that phone call I need to make or those, that important email I need to reply to and oh, what's, this, what's this text that's just come in? Uh, any, any distraction, uh, any, anything will, will take me away from prayer. Okay, so it's not that, you know, as a personality, I have a concentration problem. Uh, if the cricket is on the television, Cathy uh, can come in and, and try and talk to me. She can tell me that the house is burning down I won't lose my focus for a moment. But something about it, when it comes to speaking with the creator, the God of the universe, who sent his son to die for me, any stray thought, any ministry matter, no matter how unimportant, any distraction trumps him. Now, apart from anything else, I think that's a great sign that the the evil one is at work when we go to pray, uh, that we are in a spiritual battle that expends great efforts, stopping us even getting started. And I think we ought to be mindful of that, especially as leaders. It should not surprise us that prayer will be a struggle for us. So let me be upfront at the beginning. I'm not an expert on prayer, or on motives in ministry. But I can take you to someone who is. We can sit this morning and tomorrow morning with the first disciples at the feet of Jesus at the workshop he conducts on prayer and ministry in Matthew 6. If you think about it, I think it was the first church planters training conference, wasn't it? As these first disciples were, were prepared and equipped to go out. It's significant, I think, in Luke's version of this, in Luke 11, we're told what triggers this workshop and prayer. Jesus goes off to pray by himself. When he returns, the disciples ask, teach us to pray. You know, this is the only time the disciples ever ask to be taught something. Uh, They never say, you know, Jesus, teach us about evangelism, Uh, teach us about crossing cultures, teach us how to lead an interactive Bible study. Of all the things he teaches them, this is the only elective they ever willingly signed up for. I take it for those who knew Jesus firsthand, something deeply impressed them about his prayer life. Uh, And you guys will know, in all four Gospels, the writers keep noticing the prayer life of Jesus. How he turns from the crowd, hungry to be fed, desperate to be healed, all this pressing ministry to go off by himself to pray. Which is so unlike my ministry practice. Uh, maybe you're different, but when ministry is tough and busy for me, it doesn't drive me to pray more. Very often it has the opposite impact. But all the Gospels know how Jesus, at the times of great crisis in his life, at the Garden of Gethsemane, even on the cross itself, we see him at prayer. But also, that request by the disciples teach us to pray. It tells us that prayer, well, it, it's not something that's going to naturally happen for us, it's something that you have to be taught. Now, of course, we, we know, you know, that even the, the stumbling efforts of, you know, The very newest of Christians will be something our heaven loves to hear. But to pray well will require careful instruction. It will require a willingness for us to learn and perhaps unlearn some things. And will take a great deal of practice and hard work. In fact, I hope you'll see even this morning as we look at these few verses as sinful people, what happens naturally is we either avoid prayer entirely or we muck it up completely. We need Jesus to teach us. Now, of course, the, the first disciples were Jewish men. They, they knew lots of prayers. they had set prayers for meals, for bedtime, for the morning. Jesus will teach them not so much what to pray. They asked Jesus to teach them, How to pray. Something quite different. Not so much a set of words, but an attitude. An approach to to ministry and to their relationship with their their Heavenly Father. They want to know about His heart, His passion, and His hunger to pray. Of course, in the words we just read, Todd read for us, uh, Jesus begins... Uh, not with what they asked for. He he begins not teaching them how to pray, but how not to pray. Seems the first thing his followers need to know about prayer before, you know, all the profound things that will come, and we'll look at those tomorrow. Two grave dangers in prayer. Look at them one after the other. First one, if you look at verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like... The hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, to be seen by men. Now when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Now, now these are interesting words, aren't they? Is Jesus here is he saying we, we should never pray in public? Is he is he dissing group prayer like like Scott just did for us a minute ago? Anything but you know individual, on your own, in your room kind of prayer. Uh, well, of course, uh, the first church, the, uh, in Acts, they certainly didn't take the words of Jesus here. as a, a black ban on group prayer. And, well, Jesus himself on the cross prays with the crowd watching. But even the Lord's Prayer itself, if you actually have a look at what follows, curious that Jesus would begin by saying this, isn't it? Because if you look at the Lord's Prayer itself, from verse 9, it's designed to be said as a group prayer. It doesn't say, my Father, forgive my sins, but our Father, our sins, deliver us, give us each day. But as it stands, in the wording Jesus gives us, it's not a prayer you can go to your room and pray on your own at all. Jesus, when he teaches about prayer, assumes that his people will actually pray together. No, the thing he forbids, if you look at verse 5 again, is to be seen by men. The key is your motivation, your heart. Why do the hypocrites pray in public? Not to speak to their heavenly father, but so that others will notice. So people will be impressed. And can I say, Jesus is putting his finger here on something at the heart of something you will need to work on, not just in prayer but in every aspect of your ministry. I mean, let me put it to you as a question, Mr. and Mrs. Church Planner here today. Is there a difference between the way you pray in public and the way you pray on your own to your Heavenly Father? In the public setting, in in the group prayer, are you careful to pick the right words? In, In fact, often while others are praying, you're not actually praying along with them in your heart. You're actually in your own mind carefully crafting those profound things that you're going to pray because, well, after all, you're the church planner and and Mrs. Church Planner. You have to have profound things to pray. If there is a difference between your public and private prayer, whose opinion are you worried about when you pray? What people think? Or whether God will be pleased? who are you really praying for? Well, for us hypocrites, Jesus has some very practical down-to-earth advice. Go to your room, close the door, pray alone to your Father who's unseen. When my mum said, go to your room, close the door, stay there, it was usually because I was in a lot of trouble. But Jesus commands us to pray for a very different reason. Uh, they they tell me, I've not done it, but they they tell me, if you want to learn to fly, you never start out alone. They don't just give you the keys and say, why don't you go up for a spin? You spend many hours with a co-pilot, and only after they're really sure about this will they ever let you go flying alone. But Jesus tells us the best way to learn the right attitude to prayer, or relearn it, or keep working on it, is to go alone to your room and start speaking with God from our hearts and being real about it, without the distracting temptation of worrying what others think. Hey, I wonder in this room, there are some of us here where public prayer is the only prayer you do now. That's actually been days or weeks or maybe even Months since you've spent time on your own, in earnest prayer. Now, of course, at one level, there is a difference, but there should be a difference, between how I pray in private. Our public prayers should be, you know, clear and structured so others can follow along. Uh, You know, that doesn't matter so much when you're just praying on your own. There is a sense in which you need to pray in a way that is mindful of those around you in your public ministry, as in your preaching. You need to think about the people who are listening. And that's the sticky thing, isn't it? I need to be doing it for others in one sense, but not for them in another sense. And that's what makes, I think, constantly untangling at the reasons why we do things, our motives in ministry, so hard. I need to think about my listeners so I can serve them well. I want want this talk to be clear and engaging. But I need to think of God as my audience of one when it comes to who I am pleasing. Now, that can be a great freedom, a great comfort in ministry. You see, if I prepare my sermon seeking to please God, then God values my faithful preparation, my best efforts, even if my talk bounces off the hard hearts of my listeners. But the great danger to be those who are in public doing ministry is to start performing for others. I want the talk to be clear and engaging, but for all the wrong reasons. Well, the first thing Jesus puts his finger on is the attitude in ministry that we do it to be seen by others. The second problem, if you look in verse 7, he says, when you pray, Jesus Jesus tells us, don't keep on babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard for their many words. If the first problem is choosing to impress people, uh, the second mistake is to choose words that try and impress and affect God. If The first problem is to seek the reward of human esteem. The second problem is to think we can we can impress God and that he will reward your prayers with an answer if you manage to dazzle him sufficiently with the words that you use. But the really important thing to notice about both these dangers, impressing others, impressing God, the remedy Jesus gives in both cases is exactly the same. I don't know if you noticed it, it's tell, Todd read it for us. It's there in verse 6, it's there in verse 8 again. The same phrase is repeated. The same solution is given to both these problems in ministry. So he says both times, your father. Uh, with both these problems, the, the collective Jesus offers and to correct the person who shows off, he says, remember your father who sees what is done in secret. And to correct the person who babbles on, remember your father knows what you need before you ask. Both pitfalls, hypocrisy, repetition, both times. The keys to remember who you're dealing with, to remind yourself who it is, The kind of God you are speaking to, He is your Father. And I think it's no accident that when Jesus finally starts to talk about how we are to pray, His model prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, built into His prayer, is a a conscious reminder in, in the address, in the way that you start, of who you're dealing with. The kind of God He is. Now, again, for these Jewish men, for these first disciples, to call God Father as a term of address, the Old Testament, the Psalms for all the intimacy, God would never have dared use that. He was the King. He was Yahweh. He was the Holy One of Israel. But Jesus, not only does he talk about God with this incredibly intimate term, Father, well, I suppose it's okay for him, he's God himself. That he's been around for a while they've known each other for a while now but that he invites you and i mere creatures unworthy sinners to call god father it's a scandal beyond words that i wonder whether we're so familiar we can't we're not really hit with that anymore as people in ministry most of you probably have degrees in theology Jesus is saying here you know your wrong attitudes about prayer about ministry they're all about the wrong view of God they're all about your bad theology if there's something wrong with your prayer life it's a sure sign there is something unworthy inadequate think God so can I say a I hope you don't leave this talk and think, oh, I've got it, you know, I've got to go home and, and pray harder. I've got to set the alarm earlier. I really need to go get that book on the seven dynamics of a powerful prayer life. You know, don't don't go home and you know try a, a new position by the window or all, any of those kind of things. Get your theology on God right, and prayer will take care of itself. Ask yourself. If you struggle with prayer, hey, what am I missing about God that I don't want to pray? There's a struggle. What am I forgetting about the gospel? Let me show you what I mean. I mean, to call God our Father is not just to remind us about what He is like. It makes a statement about us. As we come in prayer, it reminds us we are His treasured children. I mean, to pray this line, that first line of the Lord's Prayer to speak about God like that is to put on your lips. It's to celebrate where you now stand with him. What he's done for you in Jesus. You see, why do I need to impress anyone else? Why do I worry what anyone else thinks? Why did I worry on the drive here to Manly about what you would think of me in this talk? Why do I worry so much about what my Think about my ministry. The one who who really knows me. And hey, I'm a sinful mess. The one who knows the worst about you. And it's worse than you even realise it is. He knows the worst bits. And he loves you so much, he sent Jesus to fix it. He longs that much to be your heavenly father. There's no way you can play with him and pretend you're something that you're not. He he knows the worst and accepts you anyway. Why do you worry what other people think? Earlier on, Jesus says, he says, those who street corners have received their reward in full. Now, did you wonder what reward is that? Well, I take it it's the esteem of the crowd. That's the only reward for them. And what Jesus means... There, there is a greater prize at stake. I take it that our reward in the very act of prayer Father, is to remember and take hold of all that we have in Him. At the very moment when I, when I come to Him with my fears and burdens, uh, with your, your church planning struggles, disappointments in your marriage. our our lostness and inadequacy to tackle them. To call God our Father is to engage our hearts and minds in remembering We are those sons and daughters that are so precious to him. You see, there is a joy to enter into, a wonder to be part of, a heavenly treasure, a reward beyond any prize this world can offer. In that moment, as you remind yourself of those things, there is a reward the esteem of your congregation and your mates in ministry cannot compare with. Hey, to the guys, I think this will be for you, I know you don't say this out loud, but do you ever think, hey, if this church works, I will be a success? I can finally feel good about myself. But if it fails, well, no matter how faithful I've been, my mates will look at me as a failure and maybe I'll see myself that way. Let me tell you, your church plant can grow amazingly and you can miss out on the only reward that really matters. In the second warning, Jesus says, don't go on and on with many words as though your father is a reluctant giver. And so, you know, you have to sort of earn a right to get his hearing, you know, to, uh, to get him to turn his face towards you, to, to, be, to stand out enough from the crowd, to do, do the backflips that, that get his attention. Your problem is your view of God. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Now, on the face of that, that could be a reason not to pray, couldn't it? I mean, why bother if God already knows? Why do I have to ask? But the point Jesus is making, he knows what you need because his face was never turned away from you. His attention was all the time fully on you. He's the father who loves you. He has been focused on you. And the question for us is, do we really believe that? Do you really believe he knows how hard ministry is for you when it's really hard? Do you you really believe he doesn't doesn't provide what you think you need? That, That he doesn't give you the things that seem essential for your work, that he knows exactly what other things you need and he's given them exactly to you. Jesus in his love for us speaks a word of freedom here. Wrong motives in ministry will enslave you and will misshape everything you do, either trying to please God, trying to please people. But a motive of God will set you free to serve him and to really love your people well and effectively. And it will help you to cope with the setbacks and the disappointments. When that new Christian who's been and bounds that you've been discipling, gives it all away. On the Sundays where you preach your heart out and church seems to be shrinking and someone up the road with a a superficial smile and a superficial gospel is doing better than you are. I'm not saying you shouldn't review how you do things, be more effective. I'm not saying you should hide behind faithfulness as a reason to excuse ineffectiveness. All I want to say is in your ministry until Jesus returns, your motives in ministry will be the great battleground. The enemy's sure, he's at work out there, but he's at work in here against your church plant your biggest obstacle in your current ministry, one way or another, is how you're going with God. Uh, Kathy and I know a lovely family who a few years ago took in on foster care a little boy. Let's, let's call him Stephen. Three years old he arrived. But clearly in his short life, he had been through a great deal. Whenever a man entered the room... Stephen would run to the corner looking terrified. He would cover his face and sometimes begin to cry. I can only begin to imagine how a kid gets to that place. At first, his his foster dad, his new dad, couldn't get anywhere near him. But slowly over time, things began to change. As he watched, see on dads, read them stories, how he'd rumble and, and wrestle with them in a way that was exciting but gentle. Slowly love gave way over fear, and he came closer and closer. I remember visiting the family about two years after Stephen arrived to see him burst through the door and run and almost knock his father over in this huge hug. Big things had changed. That's the invitation of Jesus in this passage here for you and I. To come and speak to a heavenly father for you, who loves and delights in you, to grasp hold and enjoy of that kind of relationship. How about we pray? Creator God, Lord of heaven and earth, majestic and holy, we thank you that we can call you Father. Heavenly Father, forgive us for when we long for the approval of men in our ministry more than to please you forgive us for our unworthy images our unworthy imaginings of what you were like forgive us for the times we have treated you as far less than you really are heavenly father we thank you that you know our needs even before we ask Help us to so meditate on your love that gave your only son, your love that always seeks our best, that we would want to know and seek you in prayer as our great reward and treasure. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.